Lover One, we have an amazing show for you this week. We've got a couple of Australian stories. The CEO of Snowy Hydro has stepped down and we'll talk about a couple of the controversial projects that Snowy Hydro is involved with at the moment and how that might have led to that decision. And then also there is a legal case that's being pushed against Santos Oil and Gas Company for greenwashing. After that, we dive into uh, the Dominion Wind offshore project again, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, uh, and some of what the Southern Environmental Law Center is talking about with the capacity factor guarantees and the possibility that Dominion may scrap that project. And the Port of Albany is behind schedule due to a number of environmental concerns. I'm Alan Hall, and I'm here with my good friends, Rosemary Barnes and Joel Saxon, and this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Big controversy down in Australia, Snowy Hydro. And Snowy Hydro is a, a government-owned energy utility. And it's a very odd name, Rosemary, Snowy Hydro. I uh, guess it, it is what it is. It's a hydro storage project, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a bit of history. It's an important part of Australia's history, actually. Um, after World War II, they decided to build this hydroelectric scheme. It's it's huge. You know, it's a nation-building project. And they brought in ton of immigrants from, um, yeah, all sorts of countries, but a lot of European immigrants after the war. Um, so it was kind of a kick-started Australian multiculturalism. Um, I mean, we'd already had waves of, of immigrants before that, um, so it wasn't the very beginning, but definitely lots of lots of immigrants came and turned the snowy river in the, the snowy mountains. I know a lot of people are surprised to learn that we have snow in Australia, but we we do in the snow mountains, you know, the peaks are over 2,000 metres, so that's high enough to get snowed pretty much anywhere. Um, and, yeah, they put in a, a bunch of dams, a bunch of pipes and uh, a bunch of turbines and made a bunch of hydropower. So that's where the name comes from, the Snowy River Hydroelectric Scheme. Um, yeah, Snowy Hydro. The CEO, was, uh, whose name is Paul Broad, was recently uh, quote-unquote sacked, if that's the proper term in Australia. We would call it fired in America. And he was closely tied with the previous uh, government that was just voted out. And it seems to be a lot of controversy regarding him in particular because uh, there it seems like that organization, company, I guess you call it organization, it has is losing money at a, a rapid pace. Uh, they're talking about $5.1 billion dollar uh, overrun on snowy 2.0 hydro project and i guess there's some question of whether these projects were actually needed or not i mean that's the biggest question rosemary you want to explain a little bit more about that yeah so i um i'm not sure if i ever saw the actual ceo speak paul broad but uh, all of the renewable energy conferences that i've been to since i moved back to australia like a year and a half ago they've always got some snowy hydro representative there and it's always really stuck out as being strange that they it, it's a renewable energy company predominantly right they're mostly just running um hydro assets 
um, that they do have gas peakers as well. Um, but yeah, it's you know it's uh, its essence is is hydroelectricity, which is renewable. But their company representatives always talk like they're a fossil fuel company. They're always you know like oh we've got to slow down the energy transition. Um, we can't you know have a hundred percent renewables because there's no way to store energy. It's like well, what you've got this three hundred and fifty gigawatt hour <laughs> energy storage project underway. That's what the Snowy two point is it's connecting two existing reservoirs in the the scheme um, with a, a pipe and some generation and pumping capability. So yeah, yeah, it's like you know connecting two huge reservoirs. It's it's, it's literally three hundred and fifty gigawatt hours, huge. Um, but yeah, the, the the company is really talks a lot like a like you would expect a fossil fuel company to talk. Um, so I'm not sure if it's so controversial that this guy would go because it's you know it's it is a government owned company. Um, who was really tight with the old energy minister who was really, really tight with the gas industry. The previous government had this obsession with a, a gas-fired recovery from um, COVID, um, with, you know, the idea that this would be a really fast and cheap way to, <laughs> um, to you know, get the economy moving again. But uh, obviously gas is not cheap anymore, not even in Australia, even though we we have plenty of gas, we export nearly all of it. Um, so gas prices in Australia have been just as high as they, they have been elsewhere and causing energy crises here. So, yeah, it's really interesting. There, uh, so there are a couple of big projects um, that Snow Hydro are working on that are both controversial. Is one, the Snow 2.0 that I was just talking about to add a bunch mm-hmm. of pumped hydro capability. That one was kind of the pet project of an old prime minister that probably – three prime ministers ago now, Um, Malcolm Turnbull. He was a conservative politician but really keen on renewables um, and eventually got, you know, kicked out over it Um, because in Australia we don't directly elect our prime ministers. We, um, it's up to the party, the governing party to choose them. So his his colleagues didn't like his pro-renewables stance and so they they got rid of him. Um, And that one's controversial because... It's a big, expensive project, and most people in the energy industry think you could get the same outcomes more cheaply by, um, you know, a bunch of smaller pumped hydro projects, batteries, um, and and other stuff. And yeah, the cost is blown out. I think it's it's doubled. It's you know, it's billions and billions over budget now. Time frame is blowing out as well. And part of the problem is that it's um, the project is in a national park. The Snowy Mountains um, mm. are in well, Kosciuszko National Park has uh, is where this yeah these assets are located. And I went there for a bike ride last year, and um, it sounds like it should be a low impact project because you're just connecting two existing reservoirs and you know tunnels underground. You shouldn't see it, but. I mean, there's a lot of stuff being moved around, um, a lot of a lot of digging, a lot of boring, and all of the stuff that you <laughs> that you dig has to go somewhere, um, and that's that's bad for the ecosystem. And then, not to mention that I still haven't heard exactly how it's this is going to be connected to you know major transmission lines. So that's another point of contention is that you know like if your budget doesn't include connecting it to the the grid, then it's not really a complete budget. So that's the issues basically in a nutshell with that project. But I personally, like, you know, I love that national park and I'm sad to see the the impact on it. 
but I am glad that we're going to get this one big, huge amount of energy storage that will really allow us to, you know, roll out um, renewables much, much more rapidly because there's something there to, you know, fill in the, the gaps when you've got a, a day or, or two with low wind. Is, is the fact that they're over budget is the biggest concern or is that the fact that they're in a national park? It's the, two, two things. So for environmentalists, it's the fact that they're in a national park, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And for people in the energy industry, it's that it's too expensive for what they're getting. But it's not universally hated by the energy industry, but that I would say is the predominant opinion. You know, maybe it's a 60-40 split, 60% against and 40% pro. And I'm kind of like exactly exactly on the borderline. It's like I would prefer <laughs> to achieve that storage in other ways and I think you could cheaper, but also practically like <laughs> politics of energy have been just so shocking in Australia for, I mean, especially the last 10 years, but even before that, I just want to see something done, you know. And so, yeah, it's not the best project, but right. it's a project that has support from because it was a conservative proposed project, you know, that's um, that's going to happen. <laughs> Whereas if the current sure. government, the progressive government, they they can't scrap it now. I mean, the tunnels are, are well underway and, you know, like it's, it's not going to stop now. So what's the, what's the big uh, issue then? So I think it's got more to do maybe with a second project, which – is more or less 100% everyone hates this project. It's for a new gas power plant at Curry Curry. Um, catchy, catchy name. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's just a new gas power plant that nobody in the energy industry thinks that we need, like, that just absolutely no one. It's going to be expensive. It's um, its business case only proposes running it with a 2% capacity factor, so it's not going to be providing, like, a lot of energy. Um, a lot of, yeah, power generation. Um, and it's just a dumb design as well because it's not it, – it still only has the capability for run to run for six hours at a stretch because it's got like there's something like gas canisters, huge gas canisters that are supplying it. It's not, it's not hooked up to any, you know, pipeline so it can continuously run. So it could fill in, you know, mm-hmm. like a week worth of, um, <laughs> of low wind speed in Australia, which is, you know, kind of the absolute worst case scenario that we would ever see in Australia. So it kind of doesn't really do much. It's going to cost a lot. They've changed the design now so it would have 10 hours storage instead of six. And then that um, has yeah, blown out the, the cost. Um, and the Labor government, that's a current government, that, that party has never supported this project. They kind of begrudgingly said, okay, well, we'll continue to develop it as long as it's um, able to be converted to hydrogen, green hydrogen later on. So at least it's not, you know, a fossil fuel project. But that's going to, I understand that they would have, it's not easy to just change over the existing design over to hydrogen. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that you might as well just scrap it and start again. Um, and I think if you started again with an honest look at the business case and the need for it, you would never put that in. We've got, it's not like we've got no gas generation in Australia and this would be our first gas peaker. Um, there's other ones available and, you know, what the free market is doing, because, um, you know, we do have a pretty, I don't know, robust electricity market set up in Australia and heaps of private sure. investment and where the private money is going is all renewables and storage, um, you know, at batteries and smaller pumped hydro projects. So, it's just yeah. this curry curry thing. It was just because they really wanted to have a gas fired recovery. They wanted a gas project to announce, and 
it's just not needed on any any sense so yeah i think most people in the energy industry would be happy to to see some major major cultural change happening at snow hydro because it's a important national asset that we've got and it's kind of yeah not not being run in a way that supports the energy transition it's kind of more being used as a i don't know a crowbar in the in the cogs of change joel first off do any large construction projects go under budget? Uh, not really. It, it, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's tough to see. <laughs> it happens everywhere in the in the world, right? That these these big projects get yeah. driven by politics, right? Well, I'm thinking Keystone Pipeline in the U.S., right? right? It, yes. Where you say it's so yeah. far under construction, it can't be stopped. Well, they stopped that one, and it was it had a thousand miles in the ground um, or plus. You know, so it's it's just uh, as as yeah, as energy professionals and engineers and people in the space, it's so frustrating to see things controlled by politics. And I just would like like to see some of that stop, but I don't see that in our future. Right, and it's like the money you spent is somehow recoverable. That money's gone. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> that money, that money yeah. is smoke. Right? And, and so it's a question of what it's going to take to finish it, and then do you really need it? And, and I, I think the government tries to take on longer term projects that industry won't do by itself. The more difficult ones because no one wants to invest in those projects. So it's not it's not shocking, Rosemary, that they're going to do something that's unusual. The government asked them to do something unusual. This the Snowy 2.0 pumped hydro project that fits that definition of something that it's too big that um, no 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 one in private industry would or could ever do that. So Take you know out. that yeah. it has that yeah. that behind it. You can make you can understand. I think some people are saying that its cost is blown up by five times what they originally proposed, but. I mean, the original costing Shocking. was obviously wrong to anybody who looked at it. It didn't include, you know, um, transmission connection and stuff. And the Karikari gas peaker, its cost is about doubled at the moment, but it's also much, for, um, you know, uh, less advanced. So still plenty of time for mm-hmm. that one to blow out more. But I, I suspect we'll see that Karikari plant <laughs> just disappear because it, it just literally no one thinks it's a good idea except for... Um, <laughs> A few in the gas industry and um, the previous government, they they still like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The people that are working there. And the ex-CEO of like <laughs> Snowy Hydro, he, well, he likes yeah, it. Yeah, well, but, I think yeah. he'll, most like, he'll most likely, likely be fine, right? <laughs> people at the top don't really get hurt. They have a rare set of skills typically, and they'll find another place to go. It's yeah. the people working and driving the trucks that have the hard time. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. So then now there's an, another Australian... Uh, hmm controversy going on about greenwashing with this energy company called Santos. Uh, the Austra- I can't even say this word. Australasian Center for Corporate Responsibility. Australasian? <laughs> Is that right, Rosemary? Yeah, Australasian. That's Australasian you know, that, Center for Corporate Responsibility. Yeah, like you might say the Americas, we've got Australasia. It's just, you know, like it's a it's a region sometimes called Oceania. Just you know, how do you, how do you Australia isn't Asia, would, but why didn't we we're in it, you yeah. know, like or close to it. So yeah. 
It's a new word for you, Australasian. <laughs> practice saying it at home. Oceania. That's a, much, that's a much cooler name, by the way. You don't see it used very often. Oceania is a cool term. Come on. Yeah, but also it's yeah. less obvious to, I mean, there's oceans everywhere, so maybe it's less specific. So Austral- <laughs> we'll stick with Australasian just because the Australasian Center for Corporate Responsibility uh, filed new allegations against gas producer Santos in a federal case in Australia, obviously, and claiming that the gas producer has breached Australian consumer law by misleading investors about its climate credentials. Now, Rosemary, I'm going to hand it off to you, but I'm going to let's walk gently on here because I'm always very careful when a consumer group says uh, a, a, comp- a corporation has defrauded or misled investors because pretty much every corporation can be accused of that. So. What's, yeah. What's the background here? Well, I picked this one because I know that greenwashing is one of your favorite favorite terms that always excites you every, every time we have a, yeah. a topic to talk about that involves greenwashing. <laughs> and I haven't seen a case like this where, you know, in general, companies are just free to say whatever they want about, um, you know, their environmental uh, plans for the future. Like maybe you can, you know, hold them to account for stuff that they say that they're actually doing. If they, you know, misled investors on that, that would be one thing. But Santos, they're an oil and gas company uh, and they've got, they've announced net zero by 2040 plans and um, it doesn't involve getting out of oil and gas, you know, so that, that, in itself is just clearly greenwashing because, because net zero doesn't involve business as usual with fossil fuels, like on no, in no interpretation of the term is that the case. Um, and so, yeah, some people have, some lawyers, I guess, have been been through their claims. They've got ridiculous claims about um, how they're going to reduce their emissions, um, mostly with carbon capture and storage, which... Um, you know, in Australia, we've never, never successfully implemented a, a CCS project, um, and so yeah, they're they've just used nonsensical methods to come up with this, um, you know, net zero by twenty forty claim. Um, so it just looks mm-hmm. looks like they've just got their normal business plan, which involves just extracting a bunch of oil and and gas. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of emissions associated with the extraction. They're not, they don't, they're not required to count the emissions of whatever their customers do with that oil and gas. Um, but yeah, just the extraction itself has a lot of emissions, and especially because some of their future assets have just they just have a lot of CO two in mixed in with the gas, um, and so they've got to do something with that. And then they've just said, yeah, well, magically CCS technology is going to be good enough that we're going to be capturing all of this and it's going to be at this very low price. And then um, we're going to be um, using a lot of our gas to make blue hydrogen, which is going to be somehow cheaper than um, green hydrogen in 2040, which no serious analyst thinks that it will be, I don't think, especially not these days. So it's kind of like, to me, it just sounds like sort of really common greenwashing that every oil and gas company um, that is pretending to have a net zero commitment. They're all doing similar things, but yeah, it's just interesting that in this case, people have actually, you know, filed a, a lawsuit. Like these are just too ridiculous, and it's not, yeah. you know, it's misleading to tell your investors that you're going to be net zero and that you, the impact on your bottom line is going to be, you know, um, nothing basically as a result. So, uh, yeah, that's the that's the case. Well- but in this case, it's just projections, right? I think every corporation has projections on where it's going to be in, well, five years out would be really too far, honestly, to project. But they're saying 2040. 
So we're talking 18-ish years out in the future. It's pretty hard to predict what's going to happen over the next 18 years. It's up for debate. I don't I don't think I hold them accountable for that so much, right? If you're thinking you're going to get to 2040, this is going to be monumental changes between now and 2040. That's not an unreasonable position, is it? Yeah, but think about it from another company, you know, like if I'm a car manufacturer and I'm like, oh, still going to be free in 2040. So we're going to be making just tons of money um, and, you know, we're going to be able to make our cars for $2.50, sell them for $2.50. So we'll have 100% of the market, you know, yeah. like that, that you wouldn't let them get away with that, even though, you know, I mean, I guess it's possible. You can't like prove that um, that won't happen. Um, but right. yeah, I mean, it's just, there's, there's possible and there's, you know, some sort of plausibility has to be required. Otherwise, why do you bother to do projections at all if you can just make up all of the inputs into those um, calculations? You can get whatever number you want. And, uh, yeah, so. I, would you imagine that the shareholders, of which there must be large institutional investors in a company like Santos, reviewed those numbers and either agreed or disagreed by the way that they either purchased stock or sold stock in that company? Well, Santos must think that there's a point, uh, there's a value in their net zero by 2040 goal because sure. otherwise they oh, wouldn't yeah. have made it yeah. and advertised it everywhere. So uh, I think you'd have to say, yes, there is some, some behavior has changed. Otherwise they wouldn't have bothered. <laughs> there's a lack yeah. of, and this is something that I was just talking to someone about the other day, um, uh, a large company that I know a, f a friend is involved with, they just recently turned their chief marketing officer into their chief sustainability officer. So now that person who is the chief marketing officer is is because they're good at communicating. They're now the chief sustainability officer. Well, yeah. the com then it spurred a sure. conversation of you have a case like this with the Santos case where there might not be, and I have to I have to kind of agree with this. There's not really enough people to properly vet this stuff in the marketplace, right? There's not enough Rosemary Barnes out there in the world that they can be employed by every company. So some of the stuff coming out or employed by the institutionalized investors, or whatever, some of the things coming out, some of the things getting due diligence on them are not actually being done by experts or people that can really dive into the data or the numbers or have, have the facts. So some of the stuff comes out and it's just, you know, for a lack of a better term, almost like diarrhea of the mouth kind of, here you go, some data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's nobody there to, the people putting it out don't properly know, the people QCing it or vetting it don't properly know. So I think because sustainability hasn't been high on the radar for everybody for, you know, like 50 years, like something else has. It's, it, you know, it's more well, in the last yeah. two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten 10 years that it's slowly come into place where it's a big part of corporate, the corporate global economy. And so there isn't the, the sure. skill set there in some of these companies. But doesn't ESG force them to do that? Right. ESG forces them to respond thing, in this though. nature. And it's the same yeah, thing, right? The, same the thing, ESG right? is there, but who who controls the ESG stuff? It's not always, like I said, it's People not always a Rosemary Barnes. That's who. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah. I mean, ESG, yeah, you're talking about fluctuations in markets and massive movement of markets. Lehman Brothers would be around if everybody understood what the bond market was in the United States for the home <laughs> bond market. Uh, there wouldn't yeah. have been a collapse of the stock market based on Enron. Uh, those things are like just playing out in some cases somewhat obvious if if you for people that were working in those industries up close they saw that mm -hmm. uh, i i think all these energy companies need oversight i'm just not sure taking them to court is the right way to do it i think you could make some claims i mean obviously during the shareholder meetings you can propose whatever you want and if you get enough shareholders to agree and you can actually change the board in some of these places or 
fire directors or whatever you want to do. I'm not sure the court of law is the place for this to happen. It can say it's a consumer. uh, You're mistreating the consumer. I'm not sure that's a, a, a proper way to do this because I think every company has projections that are very rosy. I saw one today from a from a wind related company, and I thought, "Oh, come on, that's crazy." There's no way the, the economics are ever going to play out in that matter, and but they can get and, and they believe it, right? So they do believe these things. It isn't like they don't believe them. I, I think we're making an assumption that the leaders of Santos don't, don't believe this. Maybe, maybe they do. I, I don't. I don't know. I just find it getting the information out there is a better way of going about it than trying to sue these guys. What? what what's the outcome? Santos so, is going to pay them. Well, maybe they have to change their their claims and, um, you know, companies, because Santos is not the only company that's doing this. Uh, Like I said, I think any any oil and gas company that has a net zero target is doing exactly the same thing or maybe not so egregiously. But um, (laughs) I would, the outcome I would love to see is that people realize that, um, that net zero or, you know, your emissions plans it's not something that you can just invent out of thin air that you actually have to plan to reduce your emissions and then take steps to do that um that that would be the Mm -hmm. outcome so you know i think that that would be would be very good because at the moment it it is sustainability is for many companies just a marketing exercise and it's just a matter of what they can get away with um yeah so i don't know It, it i think it's definitely a blurry area and i was surprised to see an actual um legal actual legal action raised over this because yeah there's projections in the future are hard and sometimes ridiculous claims are made. But on the other hand, misleading investors is definitely something that needs to be illegal and needs to be, um, you know, followed up on. There's been plenty of examples of that recently. Sure. I mean, um, yeah, Elon Musk was was fined, right, at least at least once, maybe several times for yeah. just making up ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous um, statements that weren't really true. Um you know, people make their investment decisions based on these announcements, and if it's if it's legitimately just false, misleading, not based on anything, I think that companies should be should be held to account. I think the leaders of every corporation are, and somewhat dreamers, right? Especially innovative companies, they're dreamers. What the point of the board of directors and the shareholders is is to dive into the details and make sure this dreamer is not off track and this company is going to go into the ditch. Yeah, I, I mean, but for that, there's a difference, right? like the Elon Musk kind of dreaming, where he's like, you know, people will be living on Mars by, I don't know, whatever date that he originally said, 2025 or yeah. something. Um, but then, you know, like he's started a company um, that is working towards towards doing that, trying to implement the dream, whereas an oil and gas yeah, company sure. that's just like, I have a dream that one day emissions from fossil fuel, burning fossil fuels will just totally disappear um, and then just continues business as usual. I mean, <laughs> that's that's a different kind of dreaming um, well, and that it's more like magical thinking dis- rather than <laughs> like entrepreneurial, well, uh, sure. uh, you know, big, big picture thinking. You can imagine Rosemary. Let's make Rosemary the uh, the CEO of an oil and gas company in Australia. <laughs> so, Rosemary, you're now the head of this company, and you have to steer this company into 2040. Mm. Is that an easy position to be in? No. Well, what are you going to do? No. I, oh. Are you going to lay off everybody and tell them to go home? <laughs> you see, you see, it's it's a lot easier from the outside. If you're that person, 
what are you what are you doing here? How are you going to do this? I don't feel sympathy for these companies that have been purposely getting in the way of, um, you know, recognizing the challenge of climate change for for decades now and spending a lot of effort trying to confuse the public about whether this was a real problem or not. They would have had a much easier time to move into a sustainable business model if they had done it. The writing was on the wall 30 years ago, you know, everyone knew about it. Any oil and gas company that really took it seriously what? back then could have could have changed to a sustainable business model by now. There's other, you know, plenty of um, other yeah, ways. Yeah, we to should we should always do good things energy. earlier. Rosemary, yeah. Rosemary, Rosemary, we should always do great things sooner, right? That's always the answer. Why yeah. didn't we build? You know, why didn't we X? We should always do it sooner. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll grant you that we always should do it sooner. But we're we're here in 2022, and they're trying to get to 2040. Yeah. The CEO is under now a lawsuit yeah if you're running that company what do you do is the answer just to just to close up the doors and send everybody home or to create a plan to get you to 2040 where you (laughs) still are paying people that the shareholders are still involved and that the doors are open just don't make a net zero by 2040 target and announce it everywhere if um and advertise yourself as Mm. a climate friendly company if it's impossible yeah. that you could actually do that. That would be the first step. And secondly, I mean, I, I don't think that these companies have a right to exist in the future if they um, can only do it in okay. a, a way that destructs the environment. Then they shouldn't. They shouldn't exist. The, the fact of the of an oil company or a gas company producing energy that that created the economy in which we all now exist in, that's not evil. If they're trying to get to a better solution in the future, we should encourage them to do that. Suing them at this point doesn't really help that. No, but the point of the suing is that they're not trying to do that. The point of the lawsuit is you say that you're trying to do that, but you're really not. And and if they really were, then they wouldn't be getting sued. That's an opinion. Well, Well, that's that's the whole point of the case, that that it's not realistic. No, I I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and if if I... Pulled open a uh, uh, hundred corporate statements, particularly around Silicon Valley. Ninety none of them, ninety nine of them, would just be complete garbage. <laughs> They're going to get to a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars in three years. I can I see those presentations all the time, all the time. And I don't think an oil and gas is necessary um, company is excluded from being sort of aggressively for looking in a positive sense. Wouldn't wouldn't a better tack, my opinion, wouldn't a better tack be to Call them out. You write the newspaper, write articles saying or opinions to like if you wrote a letter to the editor, Rosemary, because you you do wield some power here. If you wrote a letter to the editor, an opinion piece and said, hey, these numbers don't make any sense. We should be encouraging them to clean up what they're doing. That's that's the future. That's where they need to go. Here are some steps that they should be pursuing. That, I think, is much better situation than paying a bunch of lawyers because what you're going to do is pay a bunch of lawyers they need a, they need a consultant <laughs> okay. yeah, that was, yeah and a consultant yeah, yeah. And they need a consultant the that's right yeah <laughs> they need a lot of consultants <laughs> yeah that's what it's yeah no you know i it's it's fine if we disagree i i just think there's you got to take both sides of it and realize the other side doesn't have an easy pathway either and it's easy, and it is you know, actually it is a little bit easier to stand on the outside. And and uh, I did look up the amount of emissions, CO two emissions this morning. I was looking up CO two emissions by country. Australia is not in the top ten. 
Australia contribution to CO2 in the world about a little over 1%. You're equivalent to about Turkey. Oh, yeah, but our population so even if is Australia small goes too. To, goes as, and if you look exactly, at the... Oh, no, it, it totally, it's totally true. Yeah, true. and if you if you look per capita, then we're, we're, we're near the top. We're, <laughs> we're punching above our weight. Yeah. Um, but um, if you also... But if you I, go I mean, to zero... No, but the, is that's, it going to make that much of a difference? That's emissions in Australia, whereas if you yeah. counted all of the emissions from the stuff we sell to other countries, then it, the picture changes. So if you, because you know you don't count the emissions of our coal industry because the coal's burnt overseas. Um, same with with gas and everything, China, except for the emissions mostly. that. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it in China, but I mean a lot of other places as well. Um, if you include yeah, the best all way that, to reduce CO two emissions is to stop selling coal to China. Maybe that would help. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that would. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, I, yeah. I, no, I, I'm serious. I'm dead serious about that. I think that's if you really want to cut down CO two emissions, shutting off Australia uh, from gas and oil is not going to make that much difference. Stopping the coal shipments would make a much bigger difference. Yeah, all, all of it. And I mean, there's plenty of people yeah. <laughs> that are the same type of people that are involved yeah, yeah, in this yeah, legal yeah. action are, are definitely involved in trying yeah, to yeah, yeah. trying to shut down new coal projects and um, it would love love us to stop uh, exporting all of these things. I, I, I don't really engage sure. with that too much because I just think it's so unlikely to happen that um, it's not really worth spending a lot of time thinking about, but. Uh, other people are, and that's that's good for them. And speaking as the lo- token American at the moment, you know we're we're about fifteen percent of emissions or so. So we <laughs> we're like fifteen times Australia in terms of emissions. I think that's what the number is. It may be higher, but yeah, I mean, obviously America's got to do something about their emissions too. And I totally agree that we should be moving towards that. It's just whether we find a way to do it that gets us there sooner. Uh, speaking as an engineer. We all have great ideas, but engineers try to hone in on what gets you there the fastest, at the lowest cost, those sort of things. That's why we go mm-hmm. to school, and that's why we spend so much time thinking about these things. Like Rosemary's constantly thinking about all these renewable ideas and why it impacts the world. And, that, and that's what we should be doing. People like us, mostly Rosemary, are the ones who are going to help us get us there. And it's it's <laughs> due time that you know we start writing letters to the editor. And writing opinion pieces, I think those are going to have more impact than suing, suing some of these companies for Do people read the newspaper anymore? To YouTube channels, Rosemary. Yeah, I have 70, yeah, you know, 70 videos online. Those are my letters to the editor. But people right. do see them as well. Like I know people in, people in government have, you know, told me, oh, you know, I looked up um, – CCS is a good example. I wanted to know how carbon capture actually works. And when I Googled that, your video was the first thing that came up. And, you know, that's exactly why I spend so much effort on the on the channel is because the information isn't necessarily out there. Um, Yeah, I I tried really hard for like six months to figure out how how carbon capture actually works and whether it will one day, you know, be a um, reliable and cost effective way to reduce emissions. And I just couldn't find the answers. And that's why I had to I had to get an expert to, you know, spend a few hours explaining it to me (laughs) and and then a few tens of hours um, making the, the video so that you know, I can share share that because it's not not so easy to get the information that you need to make good decisions. See, and Rosemary, I thought about you today because I saw something out of the Department of Energy where they're promoting spending a lot of money on carbon capture systems. And I thought, they didn't watch Rosemary's video, did they? <laughs> they totally did not. Uh, because the amount of money they're spending in the hopes that they're going to have a significant carbon capture from the atmosphere uh, seem 
out of touch with where the engineering is right now. Yeah, I'm not anti-CCS. I'm a lot more pro than most people like me. Um, I'm glad that we're doing research on it and um, I'm glad that there are projects that are, you know, finding all of the problems with it because in general the CCS projects are completely unsuccessful if you you know if your goal is to capture CO2 um, you know either from a power plant or a, a, a gas um, reservoir or out of the air they're not capturing meaningful volumes of CO2 and won't for for years and years but they are learning all the problems with the technology and I think that in 2050 we're going to need this technology to be able to do something. My problem with CCS is when people talk about it as an option instead of decarbonizing when it can only work in parallel to, and it's not even in parallel because it's like decarbonize first and then CCS will be ready to, um, yep. you know, by 2050 to, to take over that last little bit. So I like to see the research. I just don't like One to see the, the reporting on it that makes people think that they don't have to do anything else. The projects I saw, exactly. Alan, that was kind of tied together with that is down in Louisiana. Um, Air products, four and a half billion dollars in a CCS, but it's tied wow. together. It's tied together with a chemical facility. So they're creating multiple different chemicals there at the site and whatever is byproduct they're injecting into the ground. So it's not like they're going to the air, we're mm. going to capture it and bring it in as the sole source right. of you know, chemicals. So they're using it as we're going to build this new plant to create hydrogen, ammonia, diesel fuel, whatever it is. And when it's a byproduct of bad stuff, instead of just letting it go, we're going to inject it in the ground. So I think of that, of that four and a half billion dollars that they're putting into that facility, like, uh, the initial phase is a couple hundred million are going into carbon capture, you know, seismic geophysical studies and, and, and whatnot there. So they're trying to figure that, some of those I, things that out. That makes sense. Yeah, Joel, I think that makes complete sense. If you have a large carbon emitter, the more you capture it there, instead of right trying there, to yeah. capture 0.04% of it from the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. And they've got, the, yeah. they've got the DOE behind them. They've got the state of Louisiana behind them. They've got a lot of heavy hitters pulling on their pulling on this project. It's very, very visible down there, too. Wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. There you go. Rosemary, you're having an impact. Project acting makes sense. Like, yeah, they got their idea from me, hundred <laughs> percent. You never know. They might have. They might hey, have. It's Probably the butterfly the, effect, right? Yes. It's possible that project idea came before my YouTube channel, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> take the win. I'll take, I'll, I'll take this. I'll take this win and feel special. <laughs> Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. So offshore off of Virginia Beach, this is in the United States. We're moving back to the United States where uh, Dominion Energy is going to put 176 Seaman Gamesa wind turbines offshore to power up to 660,000 homes. Uh, there is a problem. <laughs> and the Southern Environmental Law Center 
push for uh, the capacity factor requirements for that project. And they, they're, they're now discussing it openly of why they did it. They're trying to push towards a, a, you know, a zero carbon grid by 2050. And they think uh, that the sort of the intra workings of the government and policy boards essentially can set these requirements for capacity factors. And the reason that they think they can set them is because, well, it just needs to happen. Now, I think it's really interesting that, that they're pushing for this because I think Dominion is very upset about it and realizes that puts them at huge risk. What the Southern Environmental Law Center is, is basically saying with these uh, capacity factor requirements is that if the project doesn't reach its performance requirements, then Dominion's going to have to buy replacement energy and the ratepayer shouldn't have to pay anything towards that extra energy purchase, but the shareholder should pay that. Now, I thought, oh, wait, wait a minute, time out. Joel, since when have shareholders paid for projects that have gone sideways or for losses? How does that work? Like if I hold stock in Ford and Ford makes a car that explodes, do they come to my house and say, well, you're a shareholder. You need to send us $1,000 so we can get these cars fixed. That isn't how it works. Eventually, the people no. who buy the cars are the ones who are going to pay it. The rate holders here or the rate payers in Virginia are going to pay that regardless. Is, I think this is a – the premise of this lawsuit or what they're trying to do here with these things could have rippling effects uh, all the way up to our Supreme Court because it's it's the government meddling in capitalism and that doesn't really fly in the US. I mean that's that's what we're based on, right? Well, I think they can put down requirements for performance. I think they can do that. But as we're going to hear about next, Dominion is saying, well, if you do that, then we're not going to make the project. So you can you can just dream on about 2050 being carbon free in your grid because we're not going to, to sign up to a project in which we lose a bunch of money. Does I, I don't see the language here sounds very political. Well, we don't want the the rate payers to pay for the extra energy that the wind turbines didn't create. We want the shareholders to do that. That's a nice sentiment. That's a nice statement, but it's meaningless. The rate payers always yeah. pay. Always. It, it, we're dialing it back. This, this conversation is the same one we had at the beginning of the show when we talked about large infrastructure projects being politically driven, right? Right. While, but while this is actually not not funded by the government, right? I mean, there's there's of course the right. IRA Act yeah. is going to help them a little bit, but um, sure. this is Dominion Energy, and uh, uh, to my knowledge, a private energy corporation. They're not a government entity. I don't I don't believe. Um, that's, no, you know, just, yeah, it's just like a monopoly sort of thing. You, you yeah, they're in they're in corporation. Yeah, they're yeah. in coal. They're in natural gas. They're they're creating yeah. energy for. For the masses, and um, they've decided to take this project on. And if it goes o- over, and they have to charge more, then it, it, that's how it works. That's how the the energy markets work. Sorry, right? And part of the part of the push that the Southern Environmental Law Center has been been really enacted in terms of, of uh, law back in 2020 in the Clean Economy Act is that uh, they're going to shut down all coal and oil burning power generation from Dominion by. 2024 by 2024 so, they won't even have this 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 wind farm won't even be running by 2024 uh, it won't now <laughs> not no if way. they keep doing no what way. they're doing and going back and forth right it doesn't seem like that makes a, a a lot of sense it seems like they're going to put the ratepayers at risk 
right? It may it may achieve your your carbon neutral goals that may occur, but what is the downside cost of that for doing it? Shouldn't they be promoting getting this wind farm up and running along with a number of other renewable projects if they really want to get the grid clean by 2050? Rosemary, doesn't that make sense? Well, I, I, I'm not so familiar with how the whole energy mix works. And if uh, it could be it could be separate issues, you know, it's not um, mm. there's coal power plants closing down all over the world very rapidly in Australia. They keep on bringing forward, um, yep. you know, their um, announced closing dates. And it's not because they think they have something else to replace it. It's because they're losing money on it. And um, so, you know, the if you've got an asset that's losing money every day, then you want to shut that down as fast as possible. So it, it it's possible that sure. they're not related to each other. Um, and I would assume that that's the case. Otherwise, it's a bit silly <laughs> and for the reasons that you point out. Yeah, you. I'm sure Siemens Gamesa is a little uh, freaked out about this. It's 176 wind turbines. Joel, if I, if I sold 176 wind turbines, my sales commission, I, I assume I could Look forward to buying a new boat or something. Right? 176 <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's your basic rule is a million a megawatt in the U.S., right? So, yeah, uh, and that's just for the, that's just for the turbines. That doesn't count foundations, anything else offshore, offshore right. cables, all this good jazz, right? So if you have to replace one onshore, that's what it costs. Offshore, man, 176, and I would imagine these are uh, what is it, Siemens Gamesa? If the, uh, these got to be at least megawatt. Eight, well, they're at eight, yeah. eight at a minimum, eight to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, eight times. Oh, sorry. No, we're going to do math in our head, everybody. <laughs> no, no, I'm doing it on a calculator. <laughs> it's somewhere around That's a one gigawatt, and a half right? Yeah. If it's a, I mean, yeah, if it, it will be, yeah. If it's a gigawatt, I mean, you're a million. There, you're a billion dollars worth of turbines. Well, right. Wow, that that lets you take the sales group out to Arby's and sell them. Yeah, I hope you get a new boat. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, yeah, so Siemens, I mean, Siemens, now we, we're, as the conversation has gone today, shareholders. Now you have, uh, you know, an agency messing with a private company that can affect the shareholders. Yeah. So does the S, does the yeah. SEC hold, the, <laughs> hold, hold those guys accountable? Yeah, you know, and I think Dominion's responses to it is this governance board can't set those kind of rules. That's, that's the things that are left up to the legislature, and the legislature did not establish that. So if they want to do this capacity factor thing, they have to go to the elected representatives and make it so. I think they're going to have a hard time doing that. I think in Virginia, they would have a very difficult time doing this. This is probably why they did it at this, this sort of deep in the governmental system, why they did it way down here instead of at the very exposed <laughs> legislature where there would be news about it and a lot more kerfuffle about it. Uh, it's going to end up there anyway. I, I think what Dominion and this is my prediction, Rosemary, you can call me crazy, but I think Dominion's just going to put their hands up in the air and say, well, I guess the project is off yeah. until we get this capacity factor situation resolved. No, they have to sure, They hold as the well. lease rights too, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They have to, they have to act in the interests of their shareholders and it, it's just it's weird to even propose it. There's places that you can buy weather insurance from. Um, that, that's the correct the correct kind of place to go to, you know, to hedge on that risk. Um, yeah. So I don't know why they're trying to make a manufacturer or a, yeah development company responsible for the wind. That's not their core business. And I would also you know yeah a huge deal. And I'm sure Dominion doesn't want to step away from it, but. Um, 
you have to if if you're being you know told that you have to uh, accept the you know consequences of a risk that you can't you, you have no way to control that that is not a sensible business decision to make. I think I think some of the some of the things that we're starting to see now you're seeing weird rules pop up in laws and different things. So you saw this one pop up here. Yeah. You saw in you see in Louisiana where if they put offshore turbines within the state boundaries of their economic zone that the state gets a kickback. So you're seeing something that I don't know if we've seen in the United States in a long time, but it's an industry popping up that's very new, right? Offshore wind. So people, all these different states and entities and government people are trying to say like, oh, we can put our spin on it. We can put our stamp on it. We can do this. We can get the most out of it mm. um, and, and don't want to get just run over by it and take yeah. it, you know, and taken out to the cleaners by, oh man, 20 years down the line, we could have done what Louisiana did and, you know, get some of this, but then did it stifle development or whatever? And I, cause I thinking about, um, you used to work in West Africa quite a bit. And a lot of those governments got, got taken like a hand of because they didn't think about things beforehand or know to, to not get exploited by people out there doing, you know, oil and gas offshore, onshore. And now they've, they've gone to the other side of things where they're making it very difficult to do things there. Uh, so I, you can kind of see some of that same, not as extreme, yeah. of course, right? But that same play going on here where you have people trying to stick their head in as far as they can to get what they can out of it, whether it's a government agency, a state or whatever, uh, because it's so new and it's new things that come along that are worth billions don't happen every every decade. So uh, I think you'll see some more weird right. stuff pop up <laughs> as we continue down this, this train path of uh, offshore wind in the U.S., Right, and I don't, I don't think this is the last hurdle for this project because, as we see up in up in my neck of the woods near Albany, New York, they're trying to modernize a port so they can assemble uh, wind turbine towers, and as part of that, they have to do a little bit of dredging and create a, a platform on uh, a place they call Beacon Island, uh, so it sits sort of on the Hudson River. So the Army Corps of Engineers is up there and they're planning out how to get this wind uh, turbine development site set up so they can assemble these towers and send them downstream. And they're running into all kinds of environmental problems. So the National Marine Fisheries Service and the Environmental Protection Agency have urged the Corps of Engineers to deny or withhold permits over environmental concerns at this site. Uh, and they list a couple of reasons. One of them is including fears of the potential destruction of habitats of sturgeon and other fish, as well as wetlands. Now we're talking about a 500-foot wharf, so 500 feet is a couple of two football fields, roughly, length of uh, wharf that's going to be dredged. I think that's the concern, right? They're going to dredge this thing. Now, it's a very weird situation because Equinor is trying to work in the bite and get their uh, offshore wind up and running. And then they're relying upon these, what I'll say, government-backed, government-operated um, sites to to have these places ready to go and they're, they're not moving and it's 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 a very odd situation because the 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 head of the port of albany uh described it as megan daly said it was wrong to assert that the uh, these agencies were deny, denying dredging permits uh, even though obviously they did request to deny dredging permits and this is sort of a repeat of what happened in the springtime. And so in the springtime, they want to do some tree cut and some soil excavation so they can pack the soil so they can put heavy things on it. They started to do that. And the Corps of Engineers said, wait, you don't have all the permits. And they got a waiver at some point. The Port of Albany got a waiver, but 
the, the Corps of Engineers said, you don't have all the paperwork. You've got to shut this thing off. So they have been standstill since the spring. So we're talking about we're going into winter. It's going to start snowing here in, in about 30 days, and then it'll be over. And we're into next year. So the, the project is probably close to a year behind. If we're really serious about offshore wind in America, then we got to figure out ways to get things done. And it is nice that the Department of Energy can put on short little videos about how great this renewable future looks like. But when you get down to the details, like the engineers live in all the time, Rosemary and Joel live in all the time in the detail world, those details matter. If, if you overlook those details, these projects go nowhere. And we will never get 30 gigawatts by 2030 unless there is some weight or emphasis or people assigned to, to get these issues resolved. I don't know what the – none of us know, Joel. you have any idea what the final outcome of this will be? I, I, I don't. I bet it will go forward. Uh but it will just be delayed, as most things with the government is, uh, especially our especially our federal <laughs> government. Right? I've dealt with the Army Corps of Engineers yeah. many times in different areas of the of the U.S., and it, they're a pain every time. I've walked onto projects saying, "Yeah, we're going to start in six weeks, uh, mobilize, spend a million dollars mobilizing, and you don't have a permit from everybody else is good, but the Corps of Engineers doesn't give you a permit for six months." And it might not be because of something specific. It might just be because it sat on someone's desk and they didn't look at it. That's an extreme yeah, case, right? right? I think they're understaffed. No, I, I think yeah. they're understaffed. And we just added 87,000 IRS agents. Yeah. But what do we do for the Army Corps of Engineers? Really? Yeah. It, uh, seriously. Yeah, yeah, We like absolutely. double the amount of auditors in the country. But the things that really matter, like getting some renewable energy up projects up and running, what, are we, what, what have we done there? I, I, I can't put my finger on it and I don't see any good – things coming out of the DOE talking about them because that's that's where the action is right now. It's not at the signing a bill and all the pomp and circumstance there. It's down in the trenches, in the literally so, in the water. That's where so the read, action is. Read this thing here. If you read it, you have, and, and I'm just going to list off. These are just some of our notes for the people listening. Port of Albany, one, one government agency. Army Corps of Engineers, two. Yep. National Marine Fisheries, three. EPA, four. Uh, who's next? <laughs> I mean, and these are just the ones, Department of Environmental Conservation, five. Uh, yeah. Town of this, town of that, seven. Now, that's right. just quick, quick and one little Concerned thing. Concerned citizens. Seven, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of stakeholders of the area. There's this, there's that. There's You're talking yeah. seven governmental municipal uh, agencies that are all want to have their stay in it. And that then you then you have Equinor as a private company sitting back there going, or not private, but you know what I'm saying, um, non-governmental right. entity sitting back going like, come on, guys, we, we would like to get this going. They've got no power over any of it, uh, which is you know, right. by, the, by the setup. But um, yeah, there's no, there's no urgency in getting these things resolved because that's Port of Albany. That's one, one spot, right? All up and down that East Coast. One of many. Yeah, yeah, there's one, one of many. many. There's a, all along that East Coast, you're getting things built. And I think that's why, to be honest, I've seen quite a few articles about Gulf Coast offshore wind. I, th I think the so Gulf too. Coast offshore wind because the, the, all of the ports are there. All of the, the sites are there. All of the ability to build jackets, the, the vessels, everything. Like if you're going to do it somewhere, the Gulf Coast has got it already. Rosemary, what's the solution, right? 
you're you're the the big problem solver. What's the solution to all this craziness? Oh, I don't know. These are the the problems that I don't don't like because I see both sides, and uh, <laughs> you know, I don't I don't want to say just you know scrap the the need for approvals or just don't do it properly. But yeah, uh, I, I guess the solution is some better bureau, bureaucratic processes. And I think the US is still ahead of of Europe where they're at. You know, they're um, taking sometimes like nine years to. get get wind farms approved and um you know they they love documentation i would say more in europe uh, the average european country than they do in the the us or australia so you're not the (laughs) you're not alone in the problem and you're not the the worst at it but yeah it's just you you need streamlined processes to make sure things get checked but you know maybe reduce some some time frames and it doesn't sound like anyone's saying this shouldn't go ahead though um it's more just a matter of um you know no one wants to say that rosemary nobody nobody wants to say stop the project they want to say pause delay research which essentially means Stop. Do, do you think that that's – I wasn't getting that vibe from it, but, you know, it's not my country, so I can't read the nuance as well as, like, in Australia, I can tell when a project is <laughs> going to be delayed until it's uneconomic, and that's certainly been the the strategy with a lot of new, like, coal mines that they want to open up or gas projects or whatever. It's like, um, yeah, sure, you can do it, but, you know, we're going to make sure it takes five years because we know that in five years this will not be an economic project anymore and you won't want to do it anymore. Um, I didn't get that vibe from it here, but it might be because I'm, <laughs> I'm not, like, immersed in the culture. Yeah. To, give you a, to give you a picture of the culture and how it interacts with the federal government, follow the history of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge because it's, it's literally – Within 10 days of every presidential election, this policy changes on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Conservatives get in, open, have at it. The other side of the, the fence gets in, shut it down. And that's just how it goes. Boom, 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 boom. So I think that depending on what happens, you'll see some of these things will get delayed until election cycles. And if this, like these yep. get held up until the next election cycle, depending on what happens things will change. And that's the scary thing about investing in specifically offshore wind in the U.S., yeah, mm. it's environmental it's, ping pong. It's yeah. environmental ping pong. It's, it's who a, wants to play that game with your money? Yeah, <laughs> no. Especially when you have no control yeah. over it. It's amazing to me that right. they got his, that they got four point seven billion dollars out of the New York bite auction just because of how risky it is. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. I was you you nailed it, Joel. Joel, because I was thinking just of that. Like, man, if I had a couple billion dollars involved in these offshore projects right now, I would really be pissed off that. Yeah. The government can't get out of the government's way. Just make a decision. We'll live with it and we'll figure out how to get to plan B. That's what engineers are good at. But they're never going to get to plan B unless they can get off of plan A first. And we're, yeah. we're stuck. We're crazily stuck. Frustrating. So I guess we're going to just have to start uh, manufacturing towers and turbines in Canada and shipping them down. <laughs> or Australia. I think you probably have an easier time in Australia right now. <laughs> just ship them over, float them over. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Uh, Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to the Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.